Please come on in and find a seat, and we will begin. You need the set of notes that on the cover say Lesson 3. We're continuing Lesson 3 from last week, so some of you probably brought those notes back, but the guys were passing some out as you come in, and we are on page 17 of those notes, page 17. Let me remind you of uh, the announcements, things that are coming up. Uh, two weekends from now, we have our marriage retreat at Gull Lake. That'll be Friday night, November 11th, and Saturday the 12th, but it's just two weeks. You need to sign up now in order to be registered for that, and beautiful place, good food, good fellowship, good time for you and your spouse to get away together, and on Saturday morning, we'll have a panel discussion among our pastors and wives about uh, things God has taught us about marriage and parenting, and we can field any questions you might have during that time as well. So we hope it'll be a profitable time. I'm quite sure it will, so please consider signing up, but do so right away. Our next family meeting, that's church congregational meeting, is two weeks from today. It'll be in the afternoon at 2.30. We do those by Zoom. So if you're a member of our church, then you are encouraged and invited to be a part of that, and you'll get that Zoom link to participate. The last meeting of the year, we have four of them. The last one, though, of the year is a different a little bit than the quarterly meetings we have because this one is called the annual meeting because it anticipates some things for the coming year in 23. One of those is a proposed budget for the coming year, so we, the leadership team, will prepare that and present it to the congregation and ask for approval. And then the other thing is we're going to be electing, uh, nominating and, and asking the church to elect two new members of our leadership team, two new deacons as well. So some important items and then we always go through uh, some items of information and field any questions that folks have as well. That's two weeks from today. Our next baptism is one month. It is the 27th, Sunday the 27th. So it's just four weeks away. Yeah, four weeks away. And that'll be in the afternoon, 5 o'clock. If you've never been baptized, which means being immersed in water to symbolize death, burial, and resurrection of Christ, if that's never happened with you, then you've never been baptized as the Bible describes. It's a command that Jesus gives to his followers, and we try to make it easy for you to uh, let us know that you're interested. We have a one-page sheet uh, for you to fill out that is at the Welcome Center desk out in the lobby. Tell them you want the baptism application, one page, fill that out, give it to them, and then they'll give it to me, I'll contact you, and we'll go from there. It's just one month away, so if you are considering baptism, then fill that out uh, even before you leave today. Our worry-free decision-making series, uh, we have sought to make the case that you need not worry about your decisions for a few reasons. One is that God's will has two aspects to it, sovereign and moral. I won't spend a lot of time on that because I have already. If you have not been here for the prior five sessions that we've covered, then you'll be able to listen to those early sessions and you'll hear that distinction and the notes have that distinction as well. Uh, you can listen to any of our sermons or lessons for any of our classes, our midweek classes. These are worship service sermons on our website. But Sovereign will and moral will are the two aspects of God's will, and it is God's moral will that is revealed, that's made known to us, and that's what we are 
commanded by God to, to follow and obey. God's sovereign will, though, helps take the worry out of that because God's sovereign will is his control over everything that happens in his universe. And God does this because he is God. He's able to do this because he is God. And he's able to do it in ways that we cannot fathom. And so when, not if, you and I mess up God's moral will, when we miss God's moral will because we're disobedient or just because we're dense, and all of us are both of those at times, when we miss that, we can thank God that he overrules that in his sovereignty. In fact, he even uses it in order to move his plan forward. And often, he takes the mistakes that we made, the sins, make the sins that we commit, and advances us uh, in, in spite of ourselves many times. And so we can take comfort in that, that God is sovereign and he overrules the sins and mistakes that we inevitably make as fallen people with regard to his moral will. And God, of course, forgives when it involves sin. If we have a relationship with Jesus Christ, then we are forgiven all of our sins when we first come to the cross, past, present, and future, in terms of our relationship with God. Our relationship with God will never be severed once we come to him and he adopts us into his family. God does not disinherit his children. So that cannot be severed. Now, our fellowship can be strained. Our fellowship can, with, with the Lord can be hindered by sin. And that's why the Bible then bids us confess our sin and he's faithful and just to forgive us our sin and to cleanse us from all un, unrighteousness. And so we, we do that. And so our sins are forgiven in full in terms of our eternal destiny. And the Lord invites us to come when we realize that we have not followed his will as he's given it in Scripture, and we come to Him, and He promises to forgive. In that moral will of God, then, that is made known, the sovereign will of God you know nothing about until after it happens. Only God knows that. But the moral will of God is revealed. He gave it to us in a book. He wrote a book, and it's in the, it's in the Bible. And as you look at God's moral will in the Bible, it tells you that He has assigned to us, all of us, His mission to carry out. So it gives us a mission, and it gives us a picture, a portrait of that mission into which every one of us is to fit, and all of our decisions are to, are to fit. So as you start looking at the big picture and you say, God has left me here to be an integral part of the mission that he's carrying out in his world, to bring people to himself, to make people like himself, he does that through the agency of his church. And so I have the privilege as God's child of being involved in the work that he's doing through his church, using my gifts and abilities to advance that, that mission. And so I make my decisions accordingly. It is, it's liberating because it puts some parameters around my decisions. I don't every day get up and wonder, hey, am I going to find some new thing that's going to strike my fancy to move me to Utah? I'm just making up Utah. I, I hear Utah is really nice or something else that I'm just going to decide to do on a whim. No, I'm going to make my decisions based upon whether or not they advance the mission or not. Now, advancing the mission may be going to Utah. I have some friends who went to Utah, a whole, a whole team of friends who went to Utah, Salt Lake City, to start a church in Salt Lake City, Utah. And part of the reason that they did that is because after the Salt Lake City Olympics, people saw how beautiful Salt Lake City is, 
and tons of people moved there. And as a result, Salt Lake City, for the first time a few years ago, became minority Mormon. Under 50% of Salt Lake City is, is, now, is now Mormon because so many non-Mormons moved, in, moved into it. Well, that's a, that's a great thing for evangelistic purposes because Mormon evangelism is really difficult. Mormonism is a, is a cult and people are very close to the gospel. But you got a lot of non-Mormons that have moved into Salt Lake City. And so you got people who moved out to Salt Lake City for the very purpose of reaching those people and starting a church. Hey, that's a beautiful thing. So you might move, and if you move for ministry, if you move for training for ministry, you're doing, a, you're doing a beautiful thing. But if you're somebody whose life just consists of, hey, what's next, man? I don't know. I just sort of float through life. And, you know, and I'm just reading these brochures, and the place looks so nice over here. Maybe we'll do that one day. Maybe we'll go here. It has no connection to the mission. And God has given you a book that tells you what you're to be about and make your decisions in light of that then. But this only works if you use the book in which he has given this revelation, his moral will, his purpose to us, the Bible. It only works if you use that as directed. Top of page 17, you see it says warranty void if not used as directed. And there are lots of ways in which people misuse God's word, and we're going to talk about those in the remainder of this left lesson. I left off at the bottom of page 17. One way that we misuse is point A on 17, giving only nominal, in name only authority to the Bible. But at the bottom of page 17, you've got the maker's diet and emaciated Christians. What am I talking about there? The maker's diet. Anybody ever heard of that? So, you know, you get people, I mean, you, the, the Christian industrial complex never ceases to amaze me at how many different ways people market Christian stuff. Everything in Christian, you know, you can pull stuff out of the Bible and then put a label on it and then market it and then make money. And you can make money because Christian people buy this stuff. So if you have a copy in your home of the Maker's Diet, and I come over for a visit. Hide it. Hide your copy of, of the Maker's Diet, okay? I think there's a Daniel Diet. All right, okay, you guys are shaking your heads. And you're shaking your heads, not admitting you have the Daniel Diet, just that you heard about people who have the Daniel Diet or know about the Daniel Diet. And so, okay, there's a Daniel Diet. So Daniel ate a particular way, you know, when he was in Babylon. He refused the food of Babylon and you know, all of that. So God must be telling me in the Bible, this is, this is the diet. Or that, you know, in Eden, you know, we try to figure out what they ate in the garden. This is God's design for us to, what we're supposed to eat in the garden. And everything went south with the fall. And, you know, we got all kinds. Of, and so now we got to find the maker's diet. We got to get back to the maker's diet. Here's when you'll get back to the maker's diet, when you die. When you go to heaven, you'll be on the maker's diet. You'll be back in the garden. You'll be, have all the, you'll be in perfection again. In the meantime, there are going to be pathogens. There's going to be all kinds of junk, okay, in the stuff that we eat. I mean, avoid them if you can, but you're going to die of something. It may be something you eat. The maker's diet, the Daniel diet. You notice it's the, you know, the Garden of Eden diet. It's the Daniel diet. 
I mean, if you're going to pick diets out of the Bible, if the Bible is designed to give us diet tips, then maybe manna is the thing. Why isn't manna the thing? I mean, it came from heaven, for heaven's sake. Or what about John the Baptist? Do you have a diet? Hey, maybe that's what the Bible's teaching us when it tells us that here's a follower of God, a man fully committed to God, locusts and wild honey for him. If it's good enough for John the Baptist, it's good enough for me. You know, I'm, I'm joking, but it's, it's um, forgive me for being uh, very direct, but it's really foolish what we do. And we're misusing God's word when we do this kind of thing. And people misuse it, and then they, and then they market it, and they sell it, and then we buy it. You know, there, there were dietary laws in the law of Moses. But there were separation of things you can eat and things you can't eat. Those were all designed to be symbolic of God's people being separate from the pagan nations. All of those dietary laws. It wasn't because pork will, ki will kill you. You know, any faster than other stuff will kill you. I mean, I'm not a doctor, but it wasn't, it wasn't giving you medical advice. It was symbolic of the separation. It was drilling home to God's people that this idea of you being separate from the other peoples, I want you to see this all the time. Now, how do we know that that was the deal with the dietary laws? You remember the dietary, the dietary laws have been done away. And one of the reasons they've been done away is because the law has been done away, and the law has been done, done away. Christ has come and done away with it. And God's exclusive focus is no longer on a particular nation that had that law. And that was to be separate from all of those other nations. And so you come to the New Testament, and we're in the book of Acts during our 930 hour. And you come to chapter 10, and that's why Peter has to be given, because he's so immersed in this idea. He has to be given a special vision from God to see this, you remember, the big sheet? And all of the animals and the unclean animals from the law, they're all in there. And that was all in the context of God telling Peter, hey, don't call anything unclean that I have blessed. Go to Cornelius' house, a Gentile, and preach to him. And God used the vision of the, of the food and the unclean foods to show that. So let's use, we must use the Bible as directed. And if we don't, the warranty is void. And there's lots of ways to misuse it. Let's see some of those. I've already given some. Bottom of page 17, many people treat the Bible as if it's a buffet. You can walk down past the food and pick and choose what looks good to you. Given our penchant for junk food, it's little wonder that we're spiritually emaciated, wasting away because we've ignored portions of the diet that God has given us. You know, one uh, piece of advice that I heard years ago is uh, if you're trying to figure out next what you're going to study in your Bible, study the parts you haven't underlined. We underline the parts we like. We underline the parts that we've already heard. You've got big portions of your Bible that you haven't done anything with. Go to those. Get something, get something out of those so that we don't do the buffet thing, so that we try to take the entire Bible and then we fit its, its message together and then apply it to our lives. Top of page 18. So here is David Henderson from his book, Culture Shift, and he says this, 
The Bible is not a collection of Confucian proverbs, each of which can stand alone. And I know many people think this. They think that the Bible is just a bunch of collected kind of sayings, and each of the verses in the Bible is its own saying. Now, you think about how that, how that can be dangerous. Because if you take a verse, and then you make that verse, just that one verse, say something, the problem is that verse usually doesn't stand by itself. That verse is usually connected to verses that go before it and come after it. That's called context. So when you hear a sermon, I don't think, I don't know that in 21 years there has ever been an exception to what I'm going to say here. But whenever you hear a sermon and you open your Bible, and if you're using the NIV, they, they lay it out in paragraphs. And they do that on purpose. Instead of laying it out with every verse indented like it's its own thing, which some versions do, that's not helpful because it cements in people's minds this false idea that each verse is kind of its own proverb. So the NIV lays it out in paragraphs. And every sermon I think I've ever done has ended at the end of a paragraph. Today we did Acts chapter 18, verses 1 through 17. And if you look at verse 17, it ends a paragraph. And then next week when we go to verse 18, that'll start a new paragraph. Why? Because those verses fit together for a new thought. That's what a paragraph does. So we don't isolate the verses from the ones that go before and the ones that come after. And then, of course, that paragraph fits into the larger story of what's going on in that book. Chapter 18 of Acts fits into what we've seen about the book of Acts and where the book of Acts is, is going. So it's not a collection of Proverbs where the verses kind of all stand by themselves. Now, there's a book of Proverbs in the Bible. And Proverbs are designed to be these pithy, short sayings that do that. But most of the Bible, the vast majority of the Bible, is not that. So it's not a collection of Confucian or other types of Proverbs. It's all of a piece. Nor is it a collection of stories. It's one story, the story of how God and Jesus Christ came to indifferent and self-absorbed humanity with the sole notion that those cold and callous men and women should be made right with him. Henderson says that the term biblical needs to be redefined. It cannot mean merely from somewhere within the pages of Scripture. In light of the way the Bible's written, as a simple fabric of thought stretching from front to back, biblical must mean in keeping with what the Bible is about. And the Bible is about God's unstoppable passion to be known, loved, and served through Jesus Christ by those he has, he has made. So our approach should not be then, hey, where does it say, fill in the blank? But rather, where does it teach? Because we want what the Bible teaches. We don't, we're not looking for a, a silver bullet in one verse that answers every question that we have. Some of you know I write a blog. Most of you don't, I'm sure, but I do write a blog once a week. It's on our church website. And some weeks ago, I wrote about God's sovereignty in uh, salvation. And every now and then we'll get comments on the blog. The comments are open. 
And, some, and I had said in that blog piece that uh, we are all born, we come into the world born with original sin as sinners. Na by nature, we are sinners. And the person wrote and said, uh, hey, will you give me some verses that say in no uncertain terms, that was their, in no uncertain terms, that we are born sinners. Now, there actually are some verses that come like really close to that. But it's really the wrong question. You see what it says? It's, it's like, where do they give me, where's the chapter and verse where it says? And the truth is, most of what the Bible does is it teaches something in the midst of the story that it, that it tells. And that's what theology is. Theology collects the teaching of the Bible and pulls it together under headings like sin. And then you want to look at the verses that are being used to support that to make sure that the person who pulled it together did it accurately, for sure. And so that's what I wrote back. I wrote this long thing back to the poor person. I'm sure they're sorry they asked. My answer is longer than the original blog. But explained that very thing, and I hope it was, I hope it was helpful to them. I don't know who, the, who it was that, that wrote it. I don't even know that. It, I don't think it was someone from, from here. So you, you take what the Bible teaches, you, you then pull it together to then say, okay, what now does the Bible teach about a particular thing, about a particular topic? The Trinity. You take the Trinity. I mean, what one verse would you go to? You know, in, in all likelihood, what you do is you go to Acts chapter 5, where the Holy Spirit is called God. You go to John chapter 1 and verse 1 and verse 14, where Christ is called God, and then Numerous verses where the Father is called God. They're all called God. And then Deuteronomy chapter 6 and verse 4, Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God is one God. There's one God. But there are three persons called God. And so we get the teaching of the triunity, the trinity, from that. And we pull that together. So it's not a collection. It's not a bunch of stories. It is a story one fabric. We need to use it accordingly. That's one way to get it wrong then, is to fail to do that. C, mysticism. Mysticism is, according to the Concise Dictionary of Theology, it is a form of religious practice that seeks direct knowledge of God rather than an intellectual knowledge of Him. It's an attempt to experience God through the senses rather than through the mind interacting with Scripture. It essentially ignores the text of Scripture while looking for something else. So this is the common approach of our Pentecostal charismatic friends. And then it's also the common approach of people who are not Pentecostal and charismatic. They're like Baptist, but they either wish they were Pentecostal and charismatic, or they used to be and they haven't lost the hangover yet. Because lots of people carry this around. Pentecostals and Charismatics carry it around in a very overt way. But then there are these less overt ways that we carry it around. That God just sort of gives me a, an unction, an oomph, kind of a feeling that this is what he wants me to do. Well, where do you got that in the Bible? And if he just gives hunches, why write a book? Why not just have you go through life and then you get hit with hunches every now and then? But 
that's the way a lot of people approach the Christian life, according to Hunch. I grew up Pentecostal, as most of you know. I had had to think about this a lot. And I saw that the, the primary error that we were making was that we had the Holy Spirit bypassing the mind. In mysticism, the Holy Spirit bypasses the mind and communicates directly with the Spirit. So you have, we're spiritual beings, we have a Spirit, and the Holy Spirit communicates directly with your Spirit, is the idea. So bypasses the mind, so you can't quite explain it, you just know something's going on here, and you say it's the Holy Spirit. How you know it's the Holy Spirit, I'm not sure. I, I don't know how you know it's the Holy Spirit. A lot of times you think you know it's the Holy Spirit because it happens in a church service. So the Holy Spirit's active there, we would think. And it happens while the music is going a lot of times, too. Because it turns out the Holy Spirit has a rhythm. And you are moved by the Holy Spirit. By, you're moved by the Holy Spirit, we are told. And I noticed when I was a kid as a Pentecostal, everybody being moved by the Holy Spirit stopped being moved by the Holy Spirit when the music stopped. I'm thinking the Holy, the Holy Spirit's with the rhythm. And it happened every single time. So what does the Bible teach about that? The Bible teaches that the Holy Spirit uses the mind. And the Holy Spirit, as a matter of fact, refuses to bypass the mind. It actually teaches the very opposite of what I was raised on. Where does it teach that? One of the primary places it teaches that is in 1 Corinthians chapter 14. 1 Corinthians chapter 14, you may remember, 40 verses that are about speaking in tongues. It deals a bit with prophecy as well. The teaching on all of that goes back to 1 Corinthians chapter 12, 12, 13, and 14. Those three chapters are about these charismatic gifts, things like prophecy and tongues. 14 is devoted primarily to tongues. But here's one of the very important things that that chapter says. I think it's verse 9, chapter 14, where Paul says, I will sing with the Spirit, and I will sing with my mind also. I will speak with the Spirit, but I will speak with my mind also. He is telling the Corinthians, you guys have got this wrong. The Spirit does not bypass the mind. The Spirit does not just grab you to do something bypassing your mind. And in verse 32 of 1 Corinthians 14, verse 32, it says this, this is a quote, the Spirit of the prophets is under the control of the prophets. And that's Paul directly saying, the Spirit does not just grab you and you involuntarily have to do something. No, because the Spirit of the prophets is under the control of the, the prophets. You can control this. You can think about it. That's why Paul can say, if you're going to do this speaking in tongues, you have to do it in order. You know, one speaks, and then another person is going to speak. Well, how are you going to do that if the Spirit just, I mean, how, what if the Spirit grabs you and the Spirit grabs me at the same time? 
how are we going to do this order thing? Well, the way you do the order thing is because you can control it. You can think about it. You can decide to speak or not to speak. So mysticism underlies much of evangelical Christianity. But it's false. God gave us the mind and he expects us to utilize it. And Christians are not utilizing the mind well because of mysticism. And we're not using the mind well, even those of us who don't believe in mysticism. This is another subject. I promise I won't get off on this right now. But Christians are not discerning truth. And we're buying falsehood. And we're allowing it to scare us. And we're forwarding it. And all kinds of stuff. So this idea of the mind and using it and using it well and taking every thought captive to the obedience of Christ, 2 Corinthians 10.5, is really important if you're going to use the Bible rightly. Mysticism keeps you from doing that. Pietism, middle of page 18, keeps you from doing that. It's a variety of Christianity that emphasizes personal experience. It can lead to inordinate subjectivism and emotionalism. It can discourage careful scholarship. It ignores the meaning of the text in favor of quote, what it means to me. So you have been in a, a so-called Bible study. I say so-called because you're not really studying the Bible when you do this. Like you've got 10 people there, you're in a circle. You read a passage and then you go around and you say, hey, Paul, what does that verse mean to you? And so, hey, Bob, what does the verse mean to you? And then Bob will say how it, how it grabs him how it hits him, and Paul will talk about how it grabs him, and we all just kind of go around and say what it means to us. And when you look at the Bible, you know, no disrespect, but I don't care what it means to Bob. I don't care what it means to Paul. I mean, I do care about the Apostle Paul, but not this Paul, okay? <laughs> and, and I don't care what it means to me. What we care about is what it, mean, what it meant. As we're going to see at the end of this lesson, a text cannot mean what it never meant. It meant something when it was originally written. And that's what we want to know. And then we want to apply that to, to our lives. So it's not this kind of subjective, how does it grab me idea. If you use the Bible improperly, you'll end up with poor decision-making ability. You'll be unable to fully put the pieces of your life together in a way that makes sense. Your decisions will resemble chef's surprise. You'll have a hodgepodge of this and that piled into a bowl that's called your life. So what are the rules? The process by which we come to know God's will contained in the Bible is, here's the bad news, study. At our parent church, so we're going back decades ago, but we had a couple that came to the church for a short period of time, less than a year. And they were having some marital troubles, and they were having trouble with the one child that they had, and so they'd come for counsel to our senior pastor. He allowed me to sit in on some of that, and he started telling them, look, you're going to need to see what the Bible says about parenting and the purpose for parenting and all of that. So he gives them some assignments to, to read and to study, and then we'll come back and we'll talk about these things. Well, the guy especially, he, he wanted none of that study stuff. And so in about the third session, the pastor's going through some of this, and the guy stops him and says, hey, can't we, can't we just hold hands and pray? Well, yeah, but that's not going to help you be a better... You've got to read the book. 
You got to study the book. So you're going to have to you're going to have to read it. You're going to have to study it. That's what we do. We try to show you how to do that and how to get the most out of your Bible. And for believers, then, when we do that study, the Holy Spirit does the work of illumination that causes the believer to understand the significance of Scripture. The meaning is obtained by study. The significance is only for believers. Unbelievers can study the Bible. Some unbelievers are, many unbelievers are brilliant. They can know Greek and Hebrew. They can put syntax together. They can know the history of the book. They can do all, they can do all that stuff, kind of mechanically go through it. But it's only on believers that believers welcome the message that it teaches. And that's a work of the Holy Spirit. And it says, notice I've got in 1 Corinthians 2.14, the word there, except, I have that bolded for you for that reason. The Holy Spirit, only on believers, causes us to accept. That's a word that means welcome, receive. It's the same word that's used by John in John chapter 1 in verse 11 where it says of Jesus, he came to his own, but his own did not receive him, did not welcome him, did not accept him. Believers study it. An unbeliever might study it too, but we welcome it. We receive it. All right, page 19. Having studied the word, we must make application to our circumstances. It requires we ask relevant questions of each passage. The Scripture Unions and organizations provided Bible reading and study materials going back to the 19th century recommends at least three questions to be asked of each passage. What does it say about God? What does it say about humanity? What should I do? I mean, those are, that's a good place to start, you know, for application. You know, the Bible has got this one story, and as it unfolds the story, in all of it, it's telling you something about God, how God deals with people, how God cares for people, what, what God's character is. And that's why he does the, thing he, the things he does. So what's it telling me about God? What's it telling me about humanity? Even in the first part of your Bible, the Old Testament, and all that stuff that can seem so archaic and all of that, two things have, and this is important for us to understand about your Bible, even though there are a lot of things that have changed over the time that the Bible was written. It was written over a 1,500-year period. And so... From the beginning of the first books of the Bible till you get to the end of the Bible, things changed. We know that, right? You had a sacrificial system. You had a temple. You had all of that. When you get into the New Testament, you don't have any of that. So all, a lot of things have changed, but two things have never changed and never will change. The nature of God and the nature of people. And you can therefore read profitably, with great profit, what God did in the past. Because it tells you something about his nature, what he is like. And that will ne has never changed and it never will change. And people have never changed as well. And I beat on that in How to Get the Most Out of Your Bible. Now, how many things does the Bible address? The issues which the Bible addresses are unlimited. John Frame, theologian, rightly contends that the scope of biblical teaching is universal. He quotes his mentor, Cornelius Van Til saying, from a viewpoint governed by sola scriptura, that is, the scriptures alone, the scope of scripture, the range of subject matter to which it may be applied is unlimited. Van Til says, there's a sense in which scripture speaks of everything. We don't mean that it speaks of football games or atoms directly. We do mean that it speaks of everything either directly or indirectly. It tells us not only of the Christ and his work, but also tells us of God, who God is. 
and whence the universe has come. It gives us a philosophy of history as well as history. And further, the information on these subjects is woven into this inextricable whole. It's only if you reject the Bible as the Word of God that you can separate its so-called religious and moral instruction from what it says about other things, like the physical universe. God says in the New Testament, in the most famous verse in the Bible about the Bible, that it is for the purpose of us being equipped for, and notice, every good work. 2 Timothy 3.16. There is no good work for which we must turn outside of Scripture for answers. This means that every decision is tied into the mission for which we're called. The car we buy, job we take, leisure we enjoy, all governed by God's revealed will about the mission, every good work. So how do I know what the Bible says? Here are some principles for you that we teach. In it's, these, these principles are so important. In our remaining time, I'm going to beat on them with you now. We beat on them in how to get the most out of your Bible, and we beat on them again in Master Plan for Life. So, having gone through worry-free in this lesson, and then if you take how to get the most and you take master plan for life, if you still don't get this, I cannot help you, okay? No, we really tried to drill this home, okay? It's that important. Because the Bible is composed of human elements, that is, it was written by human authors in human language, it is to be interpreted as normal human communication. And so the principles of interpretation that apply to any human communication are equally applicable to the Bible. That one line right there, if you could just get that. You do not need a special interpretive method to interpret the Bible. God made you in His image, made you and me with the ability to communicate. And then He in turn has communicated to His image bearers. And he has done so in language like we use, like I'm using right now. You guys sitting there right now, are, if, you're, if, you're, if your mind is still operating, if you haven't fallen asleep with your eyes open, if you're still awake, as I speak, you're interpreting what I'm saying. But you're interpreting it instantaneously. Because most of the terms that I use are familiar to you. And that's because we live at the same place and in the same time. And so we can interpret automatically without really having to think about it. But if you don't live at the same time and in the same place as the person who's communicating with you, now you've got to put some work into it. And with a Bible, the last book was written 2,000 years ago. So it's written by people who didn't speak English. We have it translated into English for us. And that's a great blessing, but now I have to put conscious thought into what I just unconsciously and automatically do all the time. But this is the important thing. When you, do those, when you take those conscious steps with the Bible, you're not doing anything different than you're doing right now as I speak. You're putting it in, the context, in its context. You're just having to do it intentionally and you don't have to do it intentionally when we just talk to each other. So here are some rules that come out of that. A text cannot mean what it never meant. So every communicator, every author, every speaker has a purpose for which they write or speak. And what you want to know is what is that purpose? Why did they write this? What's the purpose for which the book of Acts was written? 
And once you know the, the purpose for the book of Acts, now you can interpret what Luke, who wrote it, was seeking to communicate. And I can't make it mean something now that it didn't mean then. So we want to find what the author's intended meaning was when it was, when it was written. It takes some work. A lot of the work has been taken out of it for you because there are a lot of smarter people than us who've been doing this for a very long time. You know, if you have a MacArthur study Bible, if you have an NIV study Bible, then every book, you look up the book of Acts and it will tell you, Luke, it tells you Luke wrote it, it tells you when Luke wrote it, it tells you why Luke wrote it, what was going on at the time Luke wrote it. You don't have to make any of that up, okay? So you can kind of do that fairly quickly and you can... And then you can begin to look at the text themselves, the passages, the paragraphs themselves now to fit into that, that larger purpose. Secondly, understand that all the texts are not alike. So it's not a collection of Confucian Proverbs. The Bible is not just one big book of Proverbs. The Bible has in its 66 books different categories of books. Fancy term is genres. Different genres. You ever want to impress your friends? Thanksgiving's coming up. You have Thanksgiving dinner with your family. Tell them, have you ever considered the genres of Scripture? And you will not get any turkey for you if you, if you do that. Which, which may be a blessing. I kind of hate turkey, but anyway. <laughs> but genres, categories, and there's lots of different ones. Proverbs is a category, and so you interpret a proverb differently than you interpret a letter that Paul wrote to the to the church at Rome. A letter is different than a proverb. A parable is different than a proverb. A narrative, that is a, a narration, story, is different, and much of the Bible is, is narration. It's narrating what happened to other people. That's different than a letter that Paul wrote. So there are different kinds of texts. We go over these in Master Plan for Life. Have I plugged Master Plan for Life uh, enough for you guys? And then a text has only one meaning. So this is, one, this is one of the reasons you don't go around the room and you say, what does it mean to you? What does it mean to you? It has one meaning. In its context, it meant one thing, and it, still, and it will forever mean that one thing. And then when you get that one thing in its context, now you seek to make application to your own life. Top of page 20. So the Bible is like other human communication. That surprises a lot of people. A lot of people think that there's some esoteric way of interpreting the Bible because it's God's book. There is no spiritual way to interpret the Bible. There's no mystical way to interpret the Bible. You interpret it in its context like you do everything else. It just takes some work. But it does differ from other communication, at least in one important aspect, and that is Although these 66 books of the Bible were written by about 40 different human authors, ultimately behind all of that is one author, God. And since there is a single author of the Bible, here's what that means. It has internal consistency. There would be no way if this was simply a human project and you had 40 different authors who were writing from different backgrounds and different cultures at different times that you could pull a book together that agrees and comes out as one story. No way. But the reason that happens is because behind all of that is God. And God superintending, overseeing that entire process so that what they wrote is what He wanted written. And therefore, it has this internal consistency. It means 
It means that the Bible will never contradict itself. And so here are a couple of additional interpretive rules that follow from the fact that the Bible has this unified message. You should interpret difficult passages in light of those that are clear. So if the Bible teaches in multiple places that when you come to Jesus Christ, he gives you eternal life, and you have that as a present possession, like it does in John 5, 24, truly, truly, I say to you, he who hears my word and believes in me has eternal life, has eternal life. Is that past or present or future tense? has. That would be present. Has in the present something called eternal life. And shall not come into condemnation. That is, in the future, they shall not come into condemnation. But is in the present passed from death to life. That's what the verse says. Pretty solid. When you come to Jesus, you believe in Jesus, you have in the present something called eternal life. In the future, you will not come into condemnation, but you have passed in the present from death to life. We good? All right. So what if another passage somewhere looks like somebody had it, but then it wasn't eternal? Like they lost it. What if there's some passage somewhere that looks like somebody was a believer, a child of God, and then sometime later they're no longer a child of God? What are you going to do with that passage? You're going to try to interpret it in light of those that are clear, true? That's what you do. So if you come to Judas Iscariot, when I was a kid, I was taught that people can be a believer and sometime later they can lose their salvation. I was taught that my whole life as a kid. And one of the people that proved it was Judas Iscariot. You remember Ju Judas was one of the apostles and he, he betrayed Jesus and he committed suicide and, and all of that. And, and so he's used as an example as, as someone who was a genuine believer who lost their salvation. The problem with this is Jesus called him, in fact, he's, he's called the son of perdition. That's actually a, a title that's applied to the Antichrist elsewhere. Jesus called him a child of the devil. Judas Iscariot was never saved. And in fact, John, who the apostle John, who was part of all, all of that, and that betrayal and, and all of that in the Last Supper, John writes in uh, 1 John, he writes this, quote, they went out from us because they were not of us. And if they were of us, they would have continued with us. But their going showed that they were never part of us. The problem with Judas was he was never a Christian. He was never saved. But you interpret difficult passages in light of those that are clear. Okay? And then lastly, Interpret each biblical book in light of its overall biblical teaching. That is, that I want, I can and should, because this has one author, harmonize what Paul says with what James says, for example. And if Paul teaches in Romans that we are saved by faith alone, and yet James is emphasizing the necessity of works for people that have exercised that faith alone, I've got to, I've got to, to harmonize those pull those pull those together in light of its overall overall biblical context what does the bible teach in its totality all right i'm two minutes over let me pray we'll be dismissed okay all right 
Father, thank you for the blessings of this day again. Thank you, Lord, for the Lord's day to be with your people and to have the freedom to be here, to have the desire to be here because you've given it to us. And Lord, we want to do your will as your people. Every, every child of God desires to do your will. And so I, I pray that for my brothers and sisters here. And Lord, we want to know how be best to do that. Thank you for giving us the light of your word to direct our path so that we do not have to search for your will. We simply have to, to read it, study it, apply it to, to our circumstances. So thank you for that. Thank you, Lord, for taking the worry out of our decision-making because it's been written and also because when we inevitably mess it up, that you love your children, you forgive your children, you overrule our sins and our mistakes in your sovereignty. So help us to go with that comfort and seek to please you this week. Grant us safety, we ask. Bring us back together next Lord's Day. In Jesus' name, amen.